This is Creative Talks Episode 5, interview with writer Paul Cornell. Hello, I'm Christopher Calloway, your host for Creator Talks, and this week we have a special Christmas treat. We're just a few days away from the holidays, and for this episode we have an interview with writer Paul Cornell. He is a novelist, a screenwriter, and comic book writer. Paul has written such television shows as Robin Hood, Primeval, Coronation Street. He's written for Doctor Who magazine. He's written for the Judge Dredd magazine. Paul has also written uh, novels for the Supernatural Crime series, including The Severed Street, London Falling, and Who Killed Sherlock Holmes. Beyond the magazine, Paul has also written for Doctor Who several novels, including Time Worm Revelation and Human Nature. When Doctor Who returned to the airwaves in 2005, he wrote the episode starring Christopher Eccleston, Father's Day, and he also wrote two episodes starring David Tennant as the Doctor in 2007, Human Nature and Family of Blood. Now, Paul and I don't get into those particular episodes because Paul doesn't like to get nostalgic about the past, particularly his own work in the past. But we do talk about Doctor Who from days gone by, and we do talk about his new Doctor Who adaptation for Titan Comics, The Third Doctor. It's a four-part miniseries that he's currently writing. We talk about that, his upcoming work in 2017 for Dynamite Comics on Vampirella. We also talk about his original novella, The Lost Child of Litchford, and Christmas music. Now, my interview with Paul began early one morning in December in the pre-dawn hours. It was still dark out, and I'm based on the East Coast. It was about 6 a.m., and it's about 11 a.m. Paul's time. Uh, He's based over in London, and he had accidentally double-booked interviews, so he was interviewing with someone else when we were supposed to begin, and it wrapped up fairly quickly, and Paul was very apologetic. And so we begin our interview with uh, Paul Cornell and myself after we finally had a chance to sync up. Where I am at six uh, six twenty eight in the morning, so it's not even daylight yet. <laughs> oh, wow, thank you. Well, uh, no. with my four year old, I'm usually up at six thirty. But my goodness, thank you so much well, for doing that. No, no problem. And you know, I have a five year old and a three month old, so I'm up anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you very much. Well, it, it, it is an absolute pleasure to get a chance to talk to you, Paul. Um, thank you. I mean, there's so much to talk about, and I know we want to focus on your current work on Doctor Who for Titan Comics, too. Yeah. Um, but one of the questions I wanted to ask you first, if I may, because I think it's important for our listeners to hear this, is that you began writing in 1990, and you entered a young writer's competition. Mm-hmm. And I wanted, yeah. to, I wanted to bring that up because, you know, I want people to know that if you try hard enough, you can really succeed at, it, at starting young. So please tell me about that because I think people should know about it. Oh, well, um, oh, um, hmm. um, yes, I, I do think really it's just about work. It's just about putting the hours in. And um, luck comes, I think it was, both Picasso and a golfer have said similar things that um, luck comes to you when you're working. And um, it's, um, I entered a BBC Young Talent Contest and had my first 
short play um, put on BBC Two um, in, I, I'll take your word for it, it was 1990, certainly the early 90s. <laughs> uh, it had um, Rita Wolf and Pete Postlethwaite in it, so I was really very lucky. And then it took me another eight years to have another television thing on. But um, the um, at the same time, I was very swiftly after after that, I started working on both the Doctor Who comics under John Freeman and on um, the New Adventures line under Peter Darville Evans, um, both a product of the fact that um, I'd been, you know, I pitched to to Peter and I knew John socially and I kept badgering him about um, writing a, the comic strip. So, um, you know, I kind of, I, I, I think I, my advice to young writers is always the same, that um, it's your job to seek out harsh critique of your work and change as a result of it. And honestly, that's the whole game. So, you know, um, I, I, I am a, a great believer in um, putting in all those hours of bad stuff. You've got to write lots and lots of bad pages before you start to write the good stuff. And that, that's true of everybody from Stephen King to uh, the Beatles. You know, um, Stephen King has a wonderful section in his um, book on called On Writing which is largely autobiographical, but has some of the best advice about writing in it I've ever seen, um, where, you know, you just follow him as he as he's starting out, filling spikes on the walls of his um, workshop with um, rejection letter after rejection letter. And when he gets to five spikes full of rejection letters, finally an editor comes back with a comment on the bottom. And he includes in the book um, the letter he sent back to that editor, which um, he'd written many, many drafts of before he sent it, which is a masterpiece of, um, thank you very much for that. Please give me more critique. I want some more harsh notes. And um, it's, that is him recognising the handhold as he's falling down the side of the cliff and just getting a fingertip on it. And that's what all of us have to do in some way, shape or form, recognise that handhold and put a fingertip on it. And, um, you know, that's really sums up what I, what I say to young writers. Um, contests are very good for that because they sort of say, here's, a, here's the handhold, where are your fingers? Yeah, you know, that's a really good point, because a lot of people want to get some critique, and they want to hear the praise, but they don't want to hear the criticism. And, well, uh, I, mean, I, I know that, I know that, <laughs> this is a very weird thing about freelancers. Um, honestly, we don't really care about the praise, that's sort of, <laughs> we, we want to hear the critique. And I, I think when you meet another writer like that, you know they're a real writer, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. All the praise doesn't really help you get better. It's just it's nice to hear it, but it doesn't help you uh, sharpen the uh, sharpen the blade and hone your craft at all. Well, it, it, exactly. <laughs> and we don't trust praise. Um, we, we, we will always go, oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know so many writers who will look through page after page of good reviews of their stuff on Internet forums, literally scrolling past it until they get to the bad one, you know. Because <laughs> uh... that's actionable. You can do something with it. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it, it's, it becomes a sort of masochism on our part as well. <laughs> oh, well although myself, I tend not to read reviews at all these days. Because mm. um, in the end, really, it doesn't, it doesn't matter very much when you've got 
an editor there to critique or an agent there to critique. Um, but they are, wow, the first reviews I got in fanzines were so vital. Those first letters in letters pages, like a very slow internet, their critique really formed me. And people like Craig Hinton, the reviewer of DWM, who gave me a real kicking for one of my early Who novels, which was so valuable. Um, and that that was the one before human nature. And it resulted in human nature because I thought I'm resting on my laurels already and I have to pull up my game and, and produce the book I want to want to produce. So yeah, anyway, anyway, we've gone on about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you, I, I, I'm sure you've been asked about this a lot, so I won't dwell on it. Um, but with human nature for the uh, new adventures of Doctor Who for Virgin, that that must have been quite a challenge because now you're taking the seventh Doctor, Sylvester McCoy. And that was, to me, that was a really tough Doctor to work with because um, he was very different from the other ones and it almost seemed rather comical in the beginning of the series on television. But when later in the series and in the books, he became a much more serious, uh, manipulating, uh, calculating Doctor. So were you part of changing that character's um, approach? Um. Oh, this is in my area of long ago and far away. I'm I hate nostalgia with a passion. I want to kill it. <laughs> oh, we don't I, have, um, we don't have to dwell on it. Of course, I mean I, no, I no, want to get no, to the new no, stuff. <laughs> um, I, I'm I I I fear nostalgia. It's sort of I can feel it pulling at me. I can feel it inside me, and it's like a cold shadow that falls over me. And I kind of feel sometimes like there's this big nostalgia audience running after me across a field. And when they catch me, they'll pull me down and I'll be one of them. Oh, no. And, um, <laughs> I intend to let myself, once I've retired, I will just watch my enormous collection of old telefantasy and and just get lost in, in happy memories. But but now, know, now's not the time. Yeah. It's not over yet. <laughs> no, it's not over yet. Yeah. So let's, um, let's move ahead then. Um, yes, you're, working, yes. you're working on Doctor Who for Titan Comics and... Um, that you're doing working on one of the third Doctor right now, and I, I picked that up, and I was just blown away because you captured the tone and the behavior of the John Pertwee Doctor perfectly. And Thank you. That's that's sort of the um, that's the I always think when you're writing a licensed property, that's kind of the baseline, getting the the voice right, and um, so also I think an awful lot of I think an awful lot of Doctor Who writers and readers could mimic the tone of any particular era just because we've seen it so much and it, we, we kind of have a an implicit memory of it. Um, but on this, I'm lucky enough to be partnered with Chris Jones, who has that also in a visual way. So basically, I can say to him, Pertwee rubs the back of his neck in that way of his, and he has the same visual memory, so he can provide it exactly. And... Um, I will say to him things like, you know, one of those moments when Roger Delgado looks aside at the Pertwee Doctor in a wry way as two Time Lords sharing confidences that they wouldn't share with lesser races. And again, he just gets it. He knows exactly what that expression is. And um, I just there was a really nice review on the Verity podcast just recently um, where Liz Miles um, mentioned that she could see where Chris had taken a a particular expression of the Delgado Master from, and it wasn't in character, it was actually in a publicity shot where he 
seemed to be laughing about something on Claws of Axos. And oh, yes. it was still perfect. Yeah, it was still perfect for the moment he was depicting then. So he's got a really vast visual memory for these guys. And I think his Delgado lives and breathes particularly. So I'm I'm very lucky with him on this. And was that a doctor you chose to write about, or is that something Titan approached you about writing a third doctor story? Well, as has now become clear from um, the cliffhanger of issue three, uh, that was the idea, the cliffhanger of issue three. Mm. And I could I could only really do that with the third doctor because it looks initially like we're doing another three doctors thing. Yes. So um, that was the idea I took to Titan. I, I said, I want to do a third doctor strip because I want to do that. And um, so... You know, it, 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 it was it, it was just the fact that my Who work up to now has been every now and then I will have an idea that only works in Doctor Who. And this was one of those and the last of those. And um, it was kind of um, I thought, oh, yes, that with the right artist, we could really play that. And uh, it's just wow. Uh, three issues out of five. I'm, I've been so lucky. We're kind of, um, really surfing it. And Chris is really putting so much energy into it. Oh, I, I love his work because he's working some of that, uh, psychedelia in there. I mean, there's something about mm-hmm. John Pertwee's doctor. It really stands out from the rest because it's at that time in our history where it's very distinct in terms of the culture. Um, and you can really see it in the art and it's really refreshing to see with a licensed property, and you don't always see this, is that you have a, a high-quality artist who can capture the look and likeness of all the characters so it doesn't pull you out of the story because they, they look different because either they can't quite render the character right or because a license, they can't draw them exactly the way they should be drawn. Mm. So it's, it's definitely uh, one of the best I've seen out of all the books they've been producing through Titan. Well, I, I think it should also reflect the time it's set in yes. as well as reflecting now. So... I followed um, Gordon Rennie and Emma Beebe's lead on um, the fourth Doctor title, where they center Sarah Jane so much more with Tom Baker than she is in the original Hinchcliffe era. I mean, mm-hmm. she's such a good actor that actually you don't realize often how small a role she plays in the plots of that era. But with those two adjusting where she is in the narrative, I thought, let's do that again with Joe. But to be true to the era, I have to do it in you know, a, a, a gentler way. And, um, but going into Joe's unconscious is, is really part of that. And the, the psychedelia that brings, it's kind of what Katie Manning brought to the show because it's, it's quite a straight lace show, but then she brings in the sweet and, um, uh, you know, glam rock and all that, just not through, just through her fashions, but through her, through, through her attitude, through the fact that she's obviously, rather like Annika Walls was at the same time, obviously somebody who's living that life outside of the, um, outside of the show. So, you know, it's kind of just giving her an extra 5% and making that 5% very glam rock indeed. And, um, I guess we can talk spoilers here. I'll put a warning up about us talking about the content okay. of issue number three, if that's all right with you. Yep, sure. Okay. Uh, spoiler alert. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Because <laughs> hopefully most people have already read that. And if you haven't, go out and read it, please. Um, that final page of the third issue, 
I was mm-hmm. just, I was like, whoa, I did not see that coming. Uh, I was so pleased that nobody did. I was looking <laughs> around on social media, waiting and waiting, and we actually got there. <laughs> and and to pull the uh, salamander, and that was an episode that uh, only one existed, and then recently, uh, a, copies of all the episodes were found and unearthed. So we mm. have the now the entire uh, enemy of the world is available to watch if someone wants to go back and see the original. Yeah, yeah that's that's I, I was I was really thrilled to see that they found. I thought that they wouldn't find anything else at this point. Yeah, and Barry Letts's direction is such a revelation. The um, that green screen behind the park and you think oh yeah they he's just put put up a green screen behind a park bench which is still pretty revolutionary and wonderful for those days but then when fraser hines walks out of the green walks across the green screen so they've obviously specifically filmed new footage to put on that screen. wow wow barry (laughs) I i can see why they made you producer you put a hell of a lot more effort into directing that season than um you know a lot of a lot of folk around you and, um, uh, yeah, I'm not so keen on the brown face. And um, so we've, we've pulled Salamander's um, Mexican, um, you know, kind of uh, me- Mexican stylings a little, a little way down. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but um, and honestly, I couldn't find any reason at all for him to put on his weird matador costume. It's <laughs> 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 just in a business suit. But... Um, but it's a really strange future that depicts actually the enemy of the world. It's kind of it's co- so confident that you don't really look at it and go, "That's just that's just a really odd, <laughs> odd future they've got outlined there." But um, the um, but uh, no, I'm. Uh, it's really pleasing because he's he's. It was just such an obvious shtick, an obvious shtick in who that nobody has done. Wow, I mean, it's like hunting down the last, the last few, last few individuals in a moth species or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's all been done. Now, this is a five-part miniseries, and the, let me bring up the elephant in the room. I, I read on your your site that this is going to be your final Doctor Who work. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's kind of a um, a side effect because I've decided I've probably got twenty twenty five years of useful creative life left if I'm really lucky and um, it's about time I really knuckled down and started producing only my own creator owned characters and work Mm -hmm. and um, this will be the second last of those in that I'm also finishing Vampirella um, uh, which will be out next year yes but as a side effect of that this is my final who work and yeah I've seen fans mocking that saying yeah he said that before but really, that was when I was a lot younger, and and, and I'm kind of throwing throwing my my jewels into the middle of the enemy, and um, saying, you know, if I, re- I I've used who as a crutch so much um, as a brilliant crutch, you know, as something I really love, but you know, I think it's time that I I said to myself, I can only rely on my own my own imagination now and um uh, also it's given me the opportunity consciously doing that of giving myself a real ending staying absolutely within the world and within the specific nature of the third doctor era um i think there's a moment which will be quite clear to people that's me saying goodbye in the final issue and um 
I think it's much better to leave something deliberately than to uh, it just happen to be that way. And I didn't want to keep coming back for reunion tours. There, there will be, there will be, there will be obviously tiny exceptions to this stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm still a wild cards writer, and if I do another wild card story, that's going to have other people's characters in it to some degree. But you know, and also, I really reserve the, the fact if. If somebody comes along and says, do you want to write your own TV series Well, where you'll be in charge, but it happens to feature, I don't know, uh, pick a, a random character from, <laughs> from who's been, not been used often in the past, I'm not going to say no to that. But apart mm-hmm. from that, apart from that, this is just my own stuff from now on. Well, if you're going out with the third Doctor on this series, you're definitely going out on a high note. I mean, it's uh, for, from so far issues one through three it's been great and i i see nothing but a great finish to it so it, it looks fantastic well um, thank you of course next issue we have the explanation of, of how yes. they got there which um it, i've seen some of the pages and um the um such specific such specific um visual references is all i'll say and um can we talk a bit about Vampirella? You mentioned that it's um, yeah. your, your artist is Jimmy Broxton, who worked on you with the girl who loved the Doctor for mm-hmm. IDW, the, the last Doctor Who book they did before the license went over to Titan. But yeah. uh, you're working with him again for Vampirella. Yeah, um, he's a brilliant artist, and um, we did Night and Squire together, which is still my favorite of my own comics. Okay. And um, uh, he's just got this amazingly adaptable style. So for Vampirella, he's bringing this very 70s-influenced, um, very European kind of, very moody, atmospheric line work um, with gorgeous colours. And um, if people have seen Night and Squire, it's not like that at all. It's um, That's very bright and shiny, and this is very gothic and mournful and lovely. And um, it's a, a future... Doctor Who fans may like this, actually. It's a um, a future utopia stroke dystopia where uh, Vampirella wakes after a long sleep and basically finds a companion and brings the whole place crashing down. And um, it, there is that uh, Doctor Who format of a stranger arrives in town and um, destroys it. And... Um, it's also me channeling my my inner Pat Mills. So I think the thing it most resembles is the kind of anger and um, kind of poppiness and jokiness of those very early uh, Doctor Who weekly comic strips. It, it brings in a lot of 2000 AD. And um, yeah, uh, we've got her in Hawke Couture. Um, uh, other people have gotten away from the red bathing suit beforehand, mm-hmm. uh, uh, so this is not a new, a new invention on our part. And um, uh, also, uh, what else can I say? Um, it has it, a cat. Got, oh yes, cat Grit the cat. Uh, it's got a cat called Grit, um, who we all we all like, and was just just something that wandered into the strip and um i think perhaps because in this awful future world grit provides some, somebody for um for characters to cuddle um <laughs> it's uh anyway jim is jim is drawing the hell out of this it's uh we'll be seeing um preview art very very soon and um yeah i'm delighted and 
uh, I don't think I'll give myself a um, a big farewell at the end of, of this run because the whole idea is we're developing a world for other other creators to then continue. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, Vampirella is one of these characters that have been reimagined too often. So I'm saying it's all true. Everything that happened to her happened. Um, we're moving forward and keeping everything on board. Yeah, that caught my eye because you, you were saying in an interview that it's not a reboot. And I was like, oh, thank God. There's been so many re- reboots of characters that you just you, you get so tired of a constant reboot. But here you're going to take everything and keep running with it and just move forward with the character in the future. <laughs> yeah, and um, I, I think that's – sometimes I think reboots are a bit rude to previous creators, mm-hmm. although that's by no means always the case. It isn't necessarily the case here. Um and um, sometimes uh, I, I I just think it's so obvious and sometimes easy to reboot. And um, you know, I really liked Kate Leith's run actually on on Vampirella, and so that and that was immediately before mine. So that's one of the things I'm trying very hard not to reboot. Um, but equally, I'm trying hard not to reboot every version before her. Um, so yeah, uh, I hope people like it. Um, but as I say, my, my, my farewell to license property is going to be in third Doctor issue five. Okay. And are you just doing issue zero of Vampirella or will you be doing additional issues? No, I'm doing all of them. I'm, oh, well, awesome. That, okay. That, that is to say I'm doing a run. There's, all right. Um, you know, I, I just mean at the end of it, it would look ridiculous and grandstandy for me to say, well, I'm off, <laughs> but somebody, somebody else will be the writer next issue, you know. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, excellent. Um, if you still have some time, I want to talk a bit about your own writing, about your own, your own creations, and you have uh, The Lost Child of Litchford, which mm. just came out, and it's the perfect time to come out because we're nearing the holidays. Christmas and, Eve. It's, yes. Uh, it's, um, and we've got another one of those coming out next year because um, uh, Tor went ahead and commissioned two. Um, and, um, yeah, these are my... Uh, Three very disparate women in a modern-day little Cotswolds town, like where I live, um, who are brought together to fight the supernatural evil in the form of initially a supermarket chain. And in book two, uh, I won't say where any threat comes from, but the central uh, initial problem is a small ghost child. Um, The lost child of the title and... Uh, Lizzie's in, insane stress toward Christ, as Christmas approaches, and um, yeah, I'm really enjoying these. And I, I never normally say things like this, but they're selling like hotcakes. <laughs> <laughs> I keep getting amazed um, emails from uh, Lee Harris, my boss at Tour Tour dot com. So uh, I, I think every now and then you get a review that's surprised that it's a novella. Um, which is, we are, we are in a novella line. They are, you know, designed to be read in an afternoon. And, um, I love that length. It, it just feels, you can write a complete story at speed in that length, you know? And, um, so we're going to keep on with them as novella size. And, um, the same, uh, company, tour.com are bringing out, um, Chalk, my very personal horror novel, uh, which is about growing up in the 80s and uh, school, um, uh, in um, March next year. Uh, And that's a project I've 
that's the project of my heart. It's one I've been working on for 20 years or so. So I'm just delighted that's finally going to come out. And um, I think that's my best best work all in all, really. And again, there's who fans, I think, will recognise the situation, who fans of a certain age or who fans of any age, really. Um, it's pretty universal. It's about bullying. And um, there's even a there's even a trip to the Doctor Who exhibition at uh, Longleat House involved. But um, so uh, yeah, uh, that's where I am right now. There's also Saucer State, the creator-owned uh, continuation of Saucer Country, coming out from um, IDW uh, uh, middle of next year, which lets me talk about a, a female president and um, with with relation to. Uh, this is the uh, female president who has been abducted by aliens and still doesn't quite know what that means. So, and now has all the powers of the president to investigate that. So that's me again being able to talk about, you know, uh, the modern day. Uh, let me just circle back for a moment about the the book. You said as a twerk about um, there's some elements about bullying in there, and you also cool. covered that with the girl who loved the doctor. Is that mm. a topic that's close to you? Is there some uh, experience yeah. or something that you really want to address about that issue, which is Good. becoming a bigger problem now with the internet? People bullying even on the yeah. internet. <laughs> Absolutely, good lord, yes. Um, I was. Uh, it shaped my entire life, honestly. Uh, my experience of bullying at school. It was. It, it was. Uh, extraordinary and uh, it's taken me many many years to realize you know how extreme it was because um, I had no context you know I, I see kids at school these days and I think wow they are so gentle to each other and that's because my own experience was so extraordinary it's 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 about cycles of abuse it's about really I think the central issue for all those of us who suffered that abuse which is to let it make sure it ends with you and not to become an abuser in return. And, you know, at various points in my life, I have failed at that and have been an abuser in return. And um, so this is a book that doesn't let our hero off from that. That's about, you know, um, his his efforts not to be that and his failures sometimes. And um, because it's very, very easy for the um, the bullied to become the bully. And, um, you know, I, I, I think there have been some accounts of this stuff, which is just a heroic victory over, over the abuse. But actually, that's not the point. The victory is in not continuing it. And, um, or just, you know, getting by however you can. I'm not about to judge other people. But that's at the heart of this book. And, um, yeah, uh, as I say, it's my best work, and I find myself getting emotional talking about it even now. I'm, wow, interviews that was come up to March are going to be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I definitely am looking forward to reading that, and that's going to be a novella size as well. No, that's a full novel. Oh, okay, excellent, good. Mm, uh, Tor.com do sometimes publish full novels, but as I say, they've got a, a monthly ongoing novella line, mm -hmm. of which not part, you know. Okay, great. No, I definitely want to check that out. Now, The Lost Child, of that is a novella. And, yes. um, and that one, uh, you can jump in on that particular one rather than having to go back to The Witches of Lichford that preceded it. So if you wanted to start, you could start there. Yes. Um, I, I, I think this is absolutely the case. I didn't really know either way, but I've had some readers do that recently, and they're fine. There's a, um, you know, there's a little bit of... Uh, 
previously on buried in the text and that seems to do fine for most people i mean that's the nice thing actually about writing in the modern day world that there are enough um you know enough signifiers of where you are and who these people are that you know it's quite easy to get people caught up and uh, you even have a Christmas soundtrack set up for this, which is something I've seen more and more of, of writers actually creating like a little soundtrack and putting it out there for people to listen to while they're reading. Well, yes. Um, the, the Tor.com did this lovely thing of putting up a, seri- a page full of videos of, oh, no, sorry, that's Chalk. No, pardon me. No, they put up a page full of videos of the soundtrack to Chalk from 1982. Oh, okay. okay. Um, so... Uh, no, that's that's an entirely different book. Um, I, I wish there was because I just <laughs> a reader on my blog this morning said I I'm an American and I have no idea who, <laughs> who these singles are by. It's, uh, <laughs> right. but, but you know, I I think the idea of Nath Christmas music translates without the details being necessary. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I watched some of those last night because I wasn't familiar. I mean, other than Bob Dylan, Doris Day, I wasn't familiar with the rest of them. And I was like, I've never seen this before. This is fantastic because I think I've heard all the Christmas music there is to hear. And I do like to hear, you know, the new interpretations of Christmas songs. But this, you you brought to us something that I haven't seen before, which is great. Where did you, what are you looking at? What was that? <laughs> oh, no, it was, um, it was on your blog and there was a link. And what I read, and unless I misinterpreted it, it was a Christmas soundtrack to The Lost Child of Litchford. Oh. And, and it had Bob Dylan, Doris Day, and some other bands I'd never heard of. Oh, my goodness. Yes, of course. Dad. You know, one of the things about um, being a writer and also having a, a young child at the same time is that your memory becomes <laughs> colander. Oh, yes, yes. Tor.com indeed put up a lovely blog post where I got to talk about all my favourite Christmas music as well. And I can I can link to that, that for the poor, yes. the poor person on my blog who commented. I'll go and do that immediately. <laughs> poor audience. I'm sorry, audience. It's just me. I'm sorry. I'm doing my best. Oh. Well, that's great. We cleared something up here. All right. You've been really helpful. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm, I'm, I I love Christmas pop music, and um, you don't get much of it these days, to be honest. It's no. um, uh, you know uh, the Christmas single used to be a big thing in Britain, and it really isn't anymore. Um, and uh, so yeah, there was there was there's lots of um, of stuff. My favourite two Christmas tracks being Bob Dylan doing "Must Be Santa." Oh yes, and um, Wizards. I wish it could be Christmas every day. I saw that. I was watching that site. That was fantastic. I mean, I never heard of them before. Have they done other work? Yeah. Oh, okay. They they, um, they were part of the original Electric Light Orchestra. Who oh, okay. Mm. Oh, I did. Uh, oh, I learned something and, now. Uh, Great. They're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're very glam rock indeed. Yes. And, uh, Joe, Joe Grant would be a fan of Wizard. <laughs> That's great. I didn't know that. That's fantastic. I want to check more of that out. Um <laughs> So I also read that, and I you had your own podcast, and you did your final episode. Um, mm. I'm, I, I'm all about all about leaving these days. <laughs> <laughs> How long I must be going? <laughs> um, yeah, um, no, we did we did um, quite a few editions uh, the, of the Cornell Collective, and I'm very proud of the um, body of material we we ended up with. But it was just becoming so stressful. I mean, with my format, which was to basically introduce three people from different fields who 
probably never met before. It was like hosting a particularly awkward party every four weeks. And <laughs> I was just getting stressed out by it. And I thought, I'm basically doing this for fun. And, you know, it's not really that fun anymore. So, um, you know, I, I tried a new format, which was very raucous. But I, I, it just wasn't me. And I I'm really hope somebody picks up on the other people who I brought in for that for that format and uh, give them their own podcast. I think Liz Miles and um, Rachel Stott really should work together in podcast form. Um, just not when I'm around with my eyes on the libel course. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I hear you because, um, you know, I was on a previous podcast and they were all lovely people, but it was kind of putting together a collection of individuals that didn't quite fit. It wasn't very organic. And that can be kind of stressful because you're trying to give everyone equal time. And also mm-hmm. you're not trying to, and I, I, I listened to the podcast last night, trying, you don't want to offend anyone. You don't, you don't yeah. like just say something just off the cuff that you don't mean to, but it might come out the wrong way and then they hear about it and then, oh, geez, so you got to be really careful what you say. Yeah, and I, I have this sense of collective responsibility even about Doctor Who still. You know, um, like I will only talk about classic Who um, at conventions on panels and things like that. Because if I'm on a, a modern Who panel, I've discovered somebody will always say something ridiculous about Stephen Moffat. Um, he was my best man. I'm I'm just not going to sit there for that. Um, well, that, that puts you in an awkward position, too. Yeah, exactly. And um, that means that I can either be a party pooper or actually oppress somebody's free speech. And Because they've got a perfect right to say stupid things about Stephen Moffat. It's just I don't want to be in the room when they do, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You did mention, I just want to point this out so people know about it, that you're working on, uh, you're contributing to Wildcards, and that's George R.R. Uh, R. Martin's little project there? Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. Um, he he maintains this ongoing superhero, superhero universe that's had real time since the 1980s. Um, so we've got characters who've aged, and it's, it's just got this lovely sense of continuity. And he brings in new writers and... Um, you know, so I'm still part of the Wild Cards Collective, and that's that's really good fun. Uh, it's it, he's a good editor. He's really precise, and um, yeah. Um, of course, the awful thing is, is, every time we announce anything to do with Wild Cards, you get a bunch of fans of his other work popping up and saying, "Where's the new book?" And it kind of drowns out the fact that we've got our we've got our own thing going on here. You know, and, and it, and it is it is simply it's a very creative very successful hobby of his but he's only giving it the time one would give to a hobby you know he he does it he does it because he enjoys it because it's a relief from from his central work and as john scousey pointed out he's moving with his central work as fast as scousey is moving with his work in terms of size of book and delivery deadlines you know so he's not a very slow writer he's (laughs) I, I think it's just ridiculous that his fans have gotten in th- this idea in their heads that um, we're taking him away from that, you know. And uh, for next year, you're also working on another book that you, you haven't talked about yet, but is, what else do you have going on right now? I mean, you have a lot, it sounds like, yeah. but what else? Oh, yeah. There's also some creator-owned um, uh, comics that uh, I can't talk about yet. And, um, you know, it's it's nice now that I've got this whole and there's there's as always there's television stuff. But the thing about television stuff is it almost never happens. So yeah, I mentioning it. Yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of things go into development, but they don't materialize. So when I see 
press releases and little announces on the internet about movies coming out, I'm like, yeah, well, maybe. I mean, it might or it might die on the vine. Yeah, and and I'm kind of um, um, if there was there was a time during the 1990s where I made continual continual money um, on a very good basis with developing shows that never got made, and I just stopped because I thought honestly I don't I care more about getting stuff made than I do about the money, and I'm at a point now where I can you know, through books and comics, do that there and actually get an audience rather than... This is... I, I know a lot of writers who've been in the same position, that especially if you're in LA, you get to a point sometimes where you just like to take a lot less money and get something made, you know. Sure. Of all the work that you've done, I mean, you've worked writing for comics, for novels, novellas, television, which medium do you like working for the best? What best suits your style? I think it's prose. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, you just get to, you get to grab your unconscious and connect it to the page. And I, I like the fact, as a holiday from that, I like the fact that comics and television are team games. Because I'm delighted in comics to have the input of artists. You know, you you're, you look in your inbox and there are these wonderful um, depictions of things from your head that have enlarged them and changed them in brilliant ways that you couldn't have imagined. Um, and I really love it when that happens. And also, putting actors into the path of my words, that never gets old, you know? That's always right. good. Yeah, it's nice to see the interpretation. It's really gratifying when it's exactly what you had in mind, or even even better than that. Well, well, no, I don't, I don't, I don't particularly go for exactly like. Mm -hmm. I, I love to be surprised. I, I want to see their contribution, you know. And that's because because I have prose as my central thing. That's where I get to be the control freak. With everything else, I get to surrender control. Okay, and that's the part I like, you know. So for Christopher Jones drawing the third doctor, I mean, you're letting him have a lot of latitude with how things are portrayed. I mean, do you give him like a, a layout of how each page should look or do you just no. say, here's the script and go for it? I, I, I send him a script, which is, um, you know, here's a depiction of what happens in every panel and what people say in every panel. Mm -hmm. But then always, always a good artist will come back to you and say, actually, can I change that to two panels there or I've got a different way of doing that and I will always, always say yes, you go ahead because you've seen that better than I can see it and you know, you, all, you, you get the best pages when that happens when they, they've got a clear idea of how to do something differently and um, you know, for the, the double page spread of the Doctor and the Master fighting oh, um, I, yes. provided, I, I provided the lines but my depiction was something like um, here's your chance to do a double page spread from Master of Kung Fu. Um, just give us a, a series of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon style um, Kung Fu moves between the two of them across the two pages. So that's all he's got to go on. And he, he did that with the two big profiles in the background. And, and, you know, that's where you think, yeah. I couldn't be happier. I'm glad you brought that page up because, uh, you know, Dr. Rudolph referred to his Venusian karate martial arts that he would use on the TV show. And you wouldn't see a great deal of it. But in the comic book, you can just go crazy with it. And there was all other kinds of uh, intergalactic martial arts thrown into that one. It's a beautiful uh, two-page spread. I mean, he did well, a fantastic job. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing about – I always say that, um, honestly, 
you to be true to an era of Doctor Who, you've got to accept the budgetary constraints, even if you don't have them. Right. So if I was doing a Troughton, I would do base under siege and we wouldn't get out of the base. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, um, you know, we, you, I always think there's something actually wrong about doing an early era with all of these aliens and all of these space battles. It just doesn't feel right. You've got to accept the limitations. But with the, with the Pertwee era, they point so much to big stuff happening in stock footage or off screen that it's quite clear that they want to suggest there's that big canvas so we can actually bring some of that and have real helicopters and, you know, things like that. And that feels natural. And um, we, we, me and Chris have been struggling to do a frame with a CSO backing behind it. We, we, <laughs> we need to find the panel, but we haven't found the right one. I don't think we're going to do that. But um, the... Um, uh, but one of the what I like is that uh, Venusian Aikido is hmm. a joke. Aikido is a form of self-defense in which there are no offensive moves. That's right. You redirect energy. Yeah. Yeah. So you're basically just catching other people's blows and you know, kind of rolling with it, which is so not nothing like what Pertwee does, which is actually karate chopping people. You right. Know? So the master has a, an equally ridiculous, I can't remember what it is now, but the master's form of, form of unarmed combat is equally ridiculous, both in terms of the planet within the solar system it originates from and the, the uselessness of it. In. <laughs> yes. Mercur Mercur was it Mercurian Kung Fu? I think it was. Yeah, I was like, what? But I thought that was hilarious. And uh, oh. yeah, it's just something about the Third Doctor's era. I think that's uh, probably the one I started watching in the mid-80s, like 1985. Uh, once I got into college, that became, uh, you know, you start experimenting with different things, and wham, there's Doctor Who. And, um, <laughs> and, and on a local public television station, they were going to show all the John Pertwee, all the ones they had unearthed and found, you know, the film negatives. And, um, and there was something about it where being grounded on Earth – rather than out in the solar system from the, from the initial start, gave me some connection to it. You know, mm. the Earth companions being with every unit, fighting uh, you know, invaders coming into the, to the Earth. Um, it was an easier entry point for me. That's why I yeah. like that one so much. I think it adds, it adds to the funkiness as well in that the, um, the weird stuff is played out against this very, uh, very normal background. And both um, all of the lead cat well. Nicholas Courtney, Pertwee and Katie Manning really get that and bring this lovely absurdity to it. So um, there's a twinkle in the eyes so often. And Nick Courtney especially delights in here I am as this very um, conservative chap um, who nevertheless has to deal straight, straight away with this weird, weird stuff. And it adds a certain layer of... of, of comedy that doesn't doesn't get in the way of the drama a, a sort of wryness which i really like yeah it's it's definitely one of my favorites well paul you've been great i don't want to take up too much more of your time but is there anything else you want to share with the audience that they should look for no, i i think we've covered everything thank you so excellent much. No. thanks i'm sorry i was late thank no it's not a problem at all paul thank you so much and i wish you the best of luck and i'll be reading Thank you. And thus concludes my interview with Mr. Paul Cornell. It was a real pleasure to talk to him. And I'm so happy I was able to bring you this interview for the holidays. Um, I look forward to reading the rest of the Doctor Who series he's working on, The Third Doctor, and also his work coming up for Dynamite Vampirella. Um, I hope you enjoyed the episode. 
please rate and review on iTunes, this podcast, Creator Talks. It's also available on Google Play. If you'd like to share some feedback with me, you can reach me through both Facebook and Twitter at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. And please visit my website, creatortalks.com. There I'll have show notes, an archive of past interviews, and even some video interviews. So please check those out. Thank you for joining me so much. I know you have a lot of podcasts to choose from, and I thank you for choosing this one. Happy Holidays.